right, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's Friday afternoon, so it's podcast time. I actually have a decent amount of questions this week, um, so I'll get right to it and see if we can answer them for you. I've seen some number one. I've seen some articles that suggest owning. Chesapeake bonds trading a five December set apart would be better than the commons in the current environment of possible restructuring. And your thoughts? I mean, bonds are always better than stock in a restructuring. Um, you know, some of the there's some of the bonds you can get for two to three cents on the dollar. Uh, you know, if the risk of bankruptcy is removed, um, you know, you could see ten. 10x on those easily, right? To go to 20 cents on the dollar from 2 to 3 cents on the dollar if the threat of Chapter 11 is removed. Um, so that could be a very exciting trade. Of course, your downside is they file and, you know, you're an unsecured creditor, so you're obviously waiting in line for a while uh, to see what you're going to get out of that. But I can't argue that there's a very compelling return scenario on that. Um Um, you know, I, I don't think in the current environment I could recommend Chesapeake. Um, if you have the risk tolerance and you've done some work on it, buying the bonds wouldn't, wouldn't be the worst trade. I would keep it small. You know, you can, you can make a great multiple on this trade relatively quickly. Um, but you know, again, if they do file, it's going to be a shit. So shit show though, you know, it's a weird thing because, you know, you got to remember, Chesapeake was about, what, 75 77% hedge for oil. So, you know, that's not a huge impediment to in the current environment. Obviously, the fringes, the oil price rise will help. Uh, management, you know, has bought some shares. They've exercised options and, and not sold those shares. The poison pill plan is not something you spend time, energy, and money on if you think you're going to file for Chapter 11. Same thing with the reverse stock split. If you're going to file Chapter 11, your stock's going to be delisted anyway. Um, so why why go through that effort also? So management's not behaving in any way in which suggests a Chapter 11. Um, you know, maybe they can negotiate an out-of-court restructuring of some of the debt that gets converted to equity, in which case, if some of your debts that converted to equity, I doubt you're going to be converted at 2 to $0.03 cents on the dollar, right? Probably 50 to 60 to $0.70 cents on the dollar debt holders are going to be willing to convert at, which means there's still amazing returns on those debt dollars. So something to keep in mind of. Um, so, I mean, we'll see what can happen. We'll see what happens. Um, I don't see you show you purchase any TPL or MPL 400. Seems to me this would have been a better purchase than KMI WMB since it is sure to double over the next year, provided the economy bounces back. Why not? I bought both KMI and TPL, had owned neither recently. Um, so a couple of reasons. Um, as far as the ability... Oh, Siri loves... You know, everyone knows that Siri picks up the damn phone and starts trying to find things on the internet when you don't ask it to, but when you say, hey, Siri, find this for me, it, it doesn't work. Um, sorry, my phone just comes to life every now and then. So here's the thing. So there is no sure doubles over the next year, even if the economy comes back. There's just there's nothing 
that statement has to be right away. There are no absolutes in the investing space um, in any scenario. So to say that we know TPL is going to double the next year, we don't know that. Um, you know, if I go back to the um, uh, uh, KMI and, and, you know, Williams purchases, we are, we are buying Kinder Morgan 10 bucks a share. It's already up 50%. Um, you know, Williams is a roughly the same sort of gain. So, you know, I, I don't know, I can't be upset about not buying TPL because of what may happen in the future. Um, you know, I, plus I'm getting a, a 10% plus in growing dividend on some of those purchased with Kinder Morgan and Williams. It's going to go indefinitely. It's going to continuously add to my returns over time also. So, I mean, I maybe TPL does better, whatever, but I really, um, I really liked Kinder Morgan. You know, TPL, you know, I, I, I view the revenue streams for Kinder Morgan and, and Williams as more secure than TPL. And um, I viewed the upside as similar to all of them. You know, I, I think Kinder Morgan is a 20 to $25 stock easily. Uh, which means it's more than a double from when I was buying it at 10, 11 bucks a share. So I view in this scenario the upside's the same. I do like securing a 10% cash flow indefinitely for as long as they own the stock. Uh, that's not a possibility with TPL. Um, so, I mean, that's those are just two of the examples. You know, Williams, I think it was 11 or 12% um, dividend yield at some point we secured with some of those purchases. So I'll, I'm very happy to take that, you know. And and it a ten percent and growing, right? When when we bought the Kinder Morgan stuff, you know it was it was a ten percent yield. They raise a dividend, so that that yields higher now. So and that's going to keep growing year after year after year as they raise the dividend. So at some point in time, if you if you go out far enough, you know you could be you know I'm making fifteen twenty percent a year cash flows off this investment I made. That's hard to beat in anything you invest in. That's that's a solid annual return in cash on that investment. Um, it's that that's the way. I, this is the way I look at that. So, um, you know, the the questioner says I bought both KMI and TPL dealer neither. I I can't argue with any of your your purchases. I'm just telling you why I purchased KMI and Williams over TPL. You have to remember KMI and Williams have take or pay contracts, meaning that if the gas flowing through their pipes. And, and remember, Kinder Morgan and Williams, they're more natural gas plays. TPL is more of an oil play. Okay, so that they're, <clears throat> yes, they're energy stocks, but they're very different. Kinder Morgan and Williams are really profiting off the increased demand for natural gas, both in the U.S. and globally. And as we saw for Q1 earnings reports, that's still at above normal record. That's still at above normal levels. So we haven't seen a dramatic collapse in natural gas demand because of COVID. That's really important. Now, we have seen a collapse in oil drilling because of oil prices. That's going to affect TPL. As the rigs come off, that's going to affect TPL. But natural, but Kinder Morgan and Williams, that's natural gas. Take or pay contracts, meaning, you know, I'm a natural gas driller. 
I, I contract to ship X number of million cubic feet, or actually should be billion cubic feet, of natural gas through Kinder Morgan or Williams pipelines. The way the contacts are, stru- are structured, I'm paying for that space whether I use it or not. That's the beauty of Kinder Morgan and Williams. Is thing. Even if the, the, the supplier does not ship gas for whatever reason, they're still paying Kinder Morgan and Williams for access to that pipeline. That isn't the same with <clears throat> um, TPL, right? They're getting royal royalties specifically off oil taken out of the ground, not in the ground. So if those rigs stop producing oil, that cash flow, that cash area dries up. Now they have a bunch of different re- um, ways they make money, right? And in Q1, that's, that's remember they still had increasing volumes year over year of oil and gas shipments to the and the water business is still doing record volumes. So as of now it hasn't been significantly reflected, but I'm gonna think that Q2 is gonna see a dip before it comes back because you know it's the old oil price. You get oil prices, they stop drilling, oil price goes up, they start drilling again. So we'll see that rebound, but I just looked at KMI and Williams Given what happened to their price and the reason the price went down, uh, to me it was a sure, a sure thing as a double at those levels as it was. And like I said before, I still got my fat dividend. Um, let's see, number three. Question with regard to your trade in Yuko. That was mentioned in a previous post. Are you still in it not listed on the portfolio? Shit, I am sorry I didn't add that. Um, I'll go back and make sure that's added. Um, I'm curious about to see the decay on a fund like this would impact potential tracking our line asset in the next couple of weeks would be would would like to time box to trade if short-term decay is really going to take quite a bit out of potential to the upside so yuko and like all the all the leverage ones you know this will so if oil gets really volatile this thing will swing you know it's a double leverage etf it'll swing two three four times the daily move because of the way that they structure it so these none of these are good for long terms, but you know, I look at it like you know, one to six weeks. If I think oil, you know, oil's at, you know, what it was eleven dollars ridiculous. I think oil could go back to thirty in a short time. You know, a short time being a couple months, it can rebound. I'll hold it for that and capture that aside. Now, will I get exactly two times the upside? It a lot of it depends on how fast the move is, how violent the move is, what what else has happened on the downside. So, you know it. None of these things track exactly because it depends on, on, on the volatility of the markets. But, you know, so when I look at time periods like this, I look at, you know, a month, maybe two months, depending where I think or where I think the the discount to value is and the time I think it will take to return to it. If I think it's going to take a year to return to it, then I'll do things like I can do things like just buy options in in oil or things like that, so... Given this week's news regarding CHK held talks with creditors about a possible loan that could keep it operating while it navigates bankruptcy proceedings, Reuters, pub- Reuters publishes it. Hold on a second, sorry. Got to make sure I'm still recording. Uh, yeah, it looks like it. Uh, Reuters publishes it, mentioning this report is from people familiar with the matter. 
Now then, this is something that could we expect given the latest oil pressure events. However, would like to know your thoughts on this since given some reasons for concern and likelihood of a CHK filing for Chapter 11. So I, I go back to the previous con, um, comments is that managers not acting like a Chapter 11 filing is coming up. Um, do I think they're having talks with creditors about restructuring some of the debt? I think they'd be stupid not to be. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean a Chapter 11 filing is forthcoming. It means they're being proactive with creditors. Just like, I mean, honestly, they've been doing it for the last three years, right? I mean, you've seen the amount of debt that they've uh, consolidated. You know, they've borrowed borrowed longer, paid off short-term stuff. They've been doing this for the last couple of years. Um, so there's no reason to expect, given what's going on, Mark, now they're not in active conversations with creditors to try and come up with a workaround. Um, so, I mean, yeah, the story is probably true is that they're talking with creditors about restructuring the debt. Yeah, I, I give credence to that. I would expect them to be, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean a Chapter 11 filing is around the corner. I wouldn't be taking a new position in Chesapeake unless it's extremely speculative for you and, you know, one of those things. But, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But you have a really... You have a disconnect between the news flow and actions of the company. So, um, a couple of weeks ago, I sold some of my AIG and bought EOG. AIG is my only loss in my portfolio. I still have a chunk left. I was thinking of swapping it for Wells Fargo to take the rest of the loss. That said, my BAC position is big, and while they're obviously both financials, AIG is doing, I think, reasonably well. Combined ratio over 100. Yeah, so I had a post on AIG a couple of days ago based on their earnings. I um, mean, the stock's up 15% in the last two days from from those, um, from those, that post. And no, the post had nothing to do with AIG going up. It's just I think people are realizing that you know, given AIG's financials, given what they've done over the last couple years with um, mitigating or capping their losses through reinsurance, and given the fact that the dividend's roughly 5% where it was, AIG is a screaming buy. I mean, it's trading at basically a little bit less than one-third of book value when insurance companies typically trade around one. I wouldn't sell AIG right here. And if, you know, I, I just, I wouldn't do it for Wells Fargo. AIG is far cheaper than Wells Fargo. It's far cheaper than Bank of America is. Um, you know, I think whenever you have an event like this, the insurance companies get slaughtered. But And, you know, it's kind of like, shoot first and ask questions later. Um, you know, I've spoken to some people in the insurance business and, you know, um, the losses for this, for a lot of companies, are going to be minimal, if any. Um, you know, they'll be able to declare force majeure on a lot of stuff. So it, it's going to be interesting what's going to come of it. Um, but AIG is highly well capitalized. They're going to come out of this stronger, not worse. And like anything else in life, this contingency is going to be written into all future policies and priced accordingly. And they'll want to make it more money in the long run because they'll be insuring for additional risks that right now they probably really aren't insuring for adequately. And, and that's how the insurance game works. That's the way it works. So, and I, it, it's, AIG's stupidly cheap at these um, valuations. Um any thoughts? No worries. I know you're not an investment advisor. Maybe just discuss relative value AIG versus BAC Wells Fargo next podcast. Yeah, so, <clears throat> um, you know, I, 
yeah, I'm not an investment advisor. I'm not advising or doing anything. I'm telling people my thoughts, you know, what I think of it, um, the way I look at it, and obviously make your own informed decisions based on the research yourself. But uh, AIG is multiples cheaper than Bank of America and Wells Fargo at this point in time. Uh, I don't view it as any riskier. Um, uh, it's it's just a huge market overreaction. <clears throat> um, by the way, just an FYI, Murray is less bullish on a Howard Hughes, HAC. That's Murray Stahl from Horizon. Um, still owns a bunch, hates to pay taxes, but it's much more positive than TPL and other inflation-resistant holdings. I'm not really a question, more of a comment, but um, yeah, so it's hard to get overly excited about companies that have a decent retail component to them, and Howard Hughes does, um, given uncertainty what's happening with that now, when things are going to open up, and when the shopping experience is going to return to normal, and I don't mean being able to go to the store, I mean being able to go to the store and not wait online because there's 50 people inside, whereas it used to be able to fit 20 or 30 inside. So I understand completely the uncertainty about stocks in that space right now because, um, you know, you don't know when, if things are going to return to normal and when they do, how normal that is. Um, do you have Brian Westbury's recent video on COVID-19 crisis in the stock market? I'd love to hear from him again. Uh, yes, I do, and I put it at the top of the page here. So um, when you when when you're on the when you're listening to the podcast, if you go to the website, the link is right there um, at the top. Um, do you think SP five hundred can ride back to the highest point again sometime this year? If there are so much or somewhat overvalued in high tech comps, will they crash the market again? I don't, I mean, I don't, know. I don't do, I don't do market timing calls and stuff like that. I just, honestly, I think it's a coin flip and you're not a genius if you're right and you're not a moron if you're wrong. So I, I don't, I don't know where the market's going to be or, you know, what, what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I just don't think of it that way the way I look at it more is what do I think the economy is going to do and the market's going to follow the economy right so it's pretty clear the market right now is paying attention to health the health of the American public and the consumer not necessarily the numbers coming out of companies right now because you know they're not good no one expected them to be good they're reasonably within what you'd expect some companies are doing surprisingly well uh, while others you know, haven't figured it out, and it's it's no more obvious in the restaurant space where you have companies like you know Chipotle doing fabulous numbers, and you know other places about to shut down. Um, some retailers are doing good numbers, and others like J Crew and Neiman Marcus are are going under. Um, so, and that's that's just management. You know, some people were able to pivot quick, adapt. Um, shift their consumers to different behaviors and some weren't able to or perhaps straddled with bad financials and didn't have the financial flexibility to invest in what they needed to do and um, weren't able to ride it out. But 
Um, I think the economy is going to recover. I think it's going to recover faster than people give it credit for. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't know if, if the market's pricing that in or not. I think the market right now is pricing in the worst case scenario has gone by. And oh, by the way, it wasn't nearly as bad as we thought it was going to be. Surprise, surprise. Please note the sarcasm. Um, and maybe hopefully next time it gets handled better and differently. Um, my two cents for what it's worth is that you had a virus that essentially killed people 70 and over who were in poor health. Um, at some point in time, the studies will be done on what the actual effects of this lockdown were. Um, you know, you disrupted the lives of 330 million people when you had 70,000 deaths of in Massachusetts if you're under 80 your chances of dying from this thing are, are, are slim to none um, the majority of our deaths the average is I think it was 80 81 or 85 years old is the majority of deaths in Massachusetts um but there are significant costs to isolating people, locking people down. You know, I found it funny that when we had a month in Mar- Mar- month in Ma- Massachusetts saw the highest level of deaths in March in, uh, I think, forever. And the instant analysis was that, well, we just underestimated the number of deaths from COVID, which I think is grossly flawed media spin, right? Um, I think the reality is that you probably had a greater number of people who were at home or who were elderly and at home or just regular people at home um, who weren't feeling well, didn't feel good, elder people who maybe didn't get to medicine or didn't get to normal doctor visit because they are terrified to go out of their house, terrified to leave, terrified to come and conquer the people and died in their homes or committed suicide or didn't go to the ER because they, they didn't want to become infected and hoped what was bothering them wasn't that bad, it ended up being fatal. And the deaths that are being reported are at-home deaths. That's the jump. Because you know auto accidents are down because half, there are a fraction of people were driving. Right? So you have overdoses, you have suicides, and at-home deaths. At-home deaths spiked huge. And they instantly blame it on COVID without a shred of evidence that those were COVID cases. My take is that was it was what I said before. And I think as more and more studies are done and as people start analyzing the costs and the effects of this, we're going to find out that shutting down the economy caused far more damage to human beings, the human condition, Long-term effects to people in the economy, businesses destroyed, families destroyed, homes lost, people permanently out of work now. That shutting down the economy the way they did it caused far more damage than this virus ever would have done. And hopefully this doesn't become the way we deal with things like this in the future. That at the first whiff of something happening, we shut things down. Because it, it, it wasn't necessary in the U.S. I don't believe that it saved hundreds of thousands of lives. 
And I do believe that for the 330 million people who are locked down, I do believe the costs associated with that, not just financial, but emotional, health-wise, and the actual life and death costs of that are going to end up being greater than, you know, than what we see. And it's not even an immediate death. If you have someone who's, you know, who skipped dialysis or skipped medical appointments, you know, they could be at home right now with a continually worsening condition that's not going to get treated, and they may die two, three, four, five months down the road. And that death maybe have been completely unavoidable, but completely um, uh, something that you they just can't stop because conditions deteriorate to a point, and up, up, con- your condition deteriorates to a point where now other dramatic steps are done, and maybe they're successful or not. But um, yeah, so there's going to be a lot of studies come out of this, and I, I, I just don't. See, I, I don't even know how I got on that thing, but um, I, I do think we'd be recovered much quicker. I think people are, are, are done being locked up. They're done being isolated. They're done not being able to go do things. And uh, I think they're going to do it in full force. You know, I, I know that, you know, the governments are going to try and, you know, slow opens and stuff like that. I think it's going to be like the... Uh, the kid with his finger in the dike that, you know, the water just keeps squirting through and eventually it's going to be a flood of people just resuming their lives and saying, fuck it. Um, you know, we've already seen business owners opening when they're not supposed to in, in some states and we've seen, you know, protests at state house and things like that. People are done. They want to, they want to get back to living, uh, not just sitting in an apartment, hiding from a virus that, by the way, you cannot hide from a virus. <clears throat> you you can delay it you can you know avoid it for a certain time but you cannot avoid it forever and you gave it more evidence about the number of people they're thinking right now massive massive this is the word that was used on our news station by our governor massive amounts of people are either predisclosed to being immune to it or have had it had absolutely no symptoms and it went through their system. So <clears throat> seeming like this is a virus that's less contagious than the flu, for the vast majority of the population, is far less dangerous from the flu. But if you're extremely elderly and in and, and, and have underlying health problems, and obesity seems to be one of the largest health problems on this, for as far as deaths, then it's more dangerous than the flu. So I think, so the question is now, do we shut something down that's more dangerous for a tiny percent of the population and negatively affect the vast majority of the population going forward? How do we handle this? So hopefully there's some good, honest studies that come out of it and people realize that this was not, you know, all you needed to do was isolate everyone over 70. You did not have to shut the country down. Just isolate those most affected by it. That's all that had to happen. And the rest of us could have either had it, had a bad cold, or had it not even known it. <clears throat> I don't know. So we'll see what happens. But So I think the economy recovers quicker than faster. I kind of think the market feels the same way. I mean, you know, we, we've clawed back a lot of the losses in a short time. Um, I don't know. I, I think things are going. I, I Honestly, people have a short memory. And uh, 
I'm not overly. There'll be another thing soon, right? I mean, we were talking months ago. All we could talk about was Russia, right? And this and that. And when's the last time we talked about that? Now something else will take on the news, and you know, we all this soundbite society nowadays. So, do I think it can ride back to the highest point? Yeah, I think um, at some point, but. Yeah, will it be this year? I don't know. It's a coin flip either way. I definitely think things get better from here, so you know you can extrapolate that as the market should start getting better too. So, um, it's been a while. I'm sure you subscribers in the meantime, but it might be worth a post or podcast of what prefers exist par value dividends. Oh, this is for the GSEs. So you know. I think as far as the GSEs go, I mean, we're probably going to end up before the Supreme Court. I think that um, Calabria is doing what he said he would do and getting... He, he's doing what he has to do. I think and my fear... <coughs> so this is my biggest fear of the GSEs right now. My single biggest fear is that Trump keeps his momentum. Looks like he's going to win the election. And I don't I, and I'm not making any political statement here. I I'm, I'm just saying if the economy's not in a recession in November, the odds of the incumbent president no matter what party is losing that election are slim. Very slim. So depending on what happens between now and November, if we're not in a recession or sliding into one, if we're on recovery, things are getting better, the odds of Trump losing are slim. Um, I am far from convinced, based on what I've seen from Biden, that he's an acceptable candidate. Um, you know, I, I, I just don't. I don't think he's going... I've seen him on stage and in questions with reporters when, um, like, in a pressure situation, and, you know, most politicians will have a response. You can agree, disagree, the response, think it's bullshit or not, but I've seen Biden just completely dissolve into babbling and telling steelworkers that they're full of shit. And... I don't know. It's not going to play on a debate stage. If, 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 and trust me, there's no one better than Trump getting under people's skin. And I'm not sure Biden is composed enough when Trump starts his attacks and making fun of him and pulling the stunts he pulled in the last debates, in the last election, and there's no reason to assume he's going to be any different. I don't think Biden's going to be able to handle it. I think he's going to lose his shit. He's going to come off looking as this, the crazy old uncle who has a couple of drinks on Thanksgiving and starts telling everyone how much he hates him. <laughs> you know? I, I don't know. I just think that... Um, I think that, you know, barring, barring something crazy, and I'm not sure what they could throw at Trump at this point. I mean, they tried the sexual assault stuff, the affairs, the... Hush money to the porn stars. They tried Russia. They, I mean, I don't know what else they're going to try between now and November, but I, I guess the only, there'll be some conspiracy about he, how he intentionally 
denied aid to blue states that kill the population, something like that will come out, or I don't know, but... So the point of that whole rambling piece was that if, if it looks like he's going to be re-elected in November, and it looks like the GOP is going to keep the Senate, then there's really not a lot of urgency for Calabria to get it done before the election. Hopefully, they learned the lesson from the last presidential election where everyone had it locked up for one party and guess what? It was way different. So hopefully that lesson is ingrained in people. But I fear is they, if they think they're going to all be there next year, that some of the urgency of that dies. Now, I hope not, and I understand the fact that a lot of the administrative reforms they want to do and the actions that can be taken they're not taking because they can't meet and you know government unlike businesses has to adhere to certain meeting requirements and open access and things like that if that can't be accomplished because of covid they don't meet and they meet when it's over so you know some of that stuff is going to be delayed which is unfortunate but is what it is um I mean, we'll take that, from, I mean, just take it for what it is. But I, I do think that, I mean, it, nothing's changed that's negative in the GSEs. I do think we're going to get close to par in the preferreds, either 25 or $50 preferreds. The biggest value is in the $50 preferreds right now. Um, biggest discount to par. You know, just... Pick one and do the math. They're going to be cheaper than most of the 25s for some reason. I don't get it why, but they seem to always be. Uh, people People think because something has a lower price, it's a better value, but that's not, a, not necessarily true, especially in this case. Um, and, and, I, and I do think that, you know, after the case is done in June, the Supreme Court decides to take this one or that one settles that one. I don't know. Depends what they rule in the other case. But I do think that we have to be significantly far along this line on irreversible actions before the election. That still holds true. So Calabria and those guys have to renegotiate the senior preferred stock agreement, start preserving more capital to GSEs, settle with um, existing shareholders in the lawsuits, and additionally have to start making plans for a capital raise and get them officially out of conservatorship under a consent decree. That as long as they adhere to and meet the timelines in, that is irreversible, and whoever came in behind them, and the fear was it was going to be Sanders, who wanted to nationalize the GSEs. Uh, we really haven't heard what Biden wants to do with them yet, so who knows. Um, you know, a Biden, a, uh, I'm sorry, uh, a Sanders election would have been very bad. Um, now there's no chance of that, but we, again, we don't know, you know, we don't know what Biden's going to do. And we don't know, you know, and we don't know that if, uh, who Biden's going to bring in, say Biden wins, who's he going to bring in as treasury secretary, treasury secretary. It could be someone completely against the GSEs. We don't know. So I, I think they need to get him on that irreversible course out of conservatorship, um, for the elections. And that maintains it, so. All right, well, that's, all right, so that's that's the questions 
Wait, yeah, it's only 35 minutes. Didn't go too long. Um, keep sending the questions in. I love doing this. I love answering the questions. It's way better than comments on the website. Um, it's just, I think that's easier for all. Uh, allows more, a longer explanation than people tend to give when they're just typing something out. Uh, especially when you type like I do. Babbling into a microphone is far more efficient than pounding away in a keyboard. So... Um, I love doing it like this and I don't, I don't mind. I don't, I don't, there must be a way to do it. Um, I don't know. I'll think about that later. I'll just show that idea. Okay. So that's about it I got for this week. I hope everyone had a great safe week. I hope everyone's family's safe and healthy. I hope that, um, uh, those of you who have been affected by COVID have all recovered. I know a couple people have and, um, I know they are very sick, but they're also very healthy now, so I'm, I'm thankful for that. So have a great weekend, everybody, and um, I don't know where you are, but we have snow in the forecast tonight, so I'm pretty much ready for this year to end and start a brand new year because <laughs> I can't imagine what else is going to go wrong in this one so far. So, uh, But have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll be back next week.